Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Straight Out of Crumpton. I'm Gabby Barr, and I'm here with Mr. Greg Crumpton. Greg, how are you today? Gabby, I'm doing good. As I told you a couple of minutes ago, I literally walked off an airplane and walked into this conference room, which is why I have this beautiful artwork behind me. Um, but really excited. I was I was uh, flying back home, and uh, I was just getting jazzed up because our guest today is somebody that I, I think a lot of her work, uh, of what I've been able to learn and read and study and, and practice for that matter. And uh, it's just fun to get to talk to somebody that, you know, you, you kind of read about and you think about, but you don't know. And then to be able to have a conversation is just really cool. So I'm super excited. I am super excited as well. I am thrilled, uh, thrilled that you had me on the podcast. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, Kim, for introducing yourself a little bit. Um, as Greg said, our guest is really exciting today. Um, we are talking with Kim Scott. She is the author of Radical Candor and Just Work. And Kim, how are you doing today? I am doing really well today. I'm ex I know I'm going to learn something from you all. So uh, that is a thrill. Well, if you learn anything from us, Kim, it may be about air conditioning. So, that, uh, Well, that that's something I need to know about. I think <laughs> it's getting hotter out there. So uh, got to make sure the air and, and I have questions. I have a complicated house situation. So maybe I we can talk about that at the end, too. Yeah, we'll take we'll take we'll take a Q&A on air conditioning afterwards. So. But I uh, really do appreciate you taking time. Um, so we. You know, we, we try to talk to folks on the podcast that um, I think challenge us and that make us think and that uh, kind of delve into the human side of all the stuff that we do every day and the relationships. And, you know, when I read your book, um, the revised version is the one that I got. Um, it, it just it was one of those. It was kind of like Gladwell outliers book it just it just clicked for me you know some books they click for you and some books like yeah that was good but you know you don't think much more about it but your book i've, I've quoted uh a lot and over the years you know i've tried to figure out how to best communicate because my natural style of communication is very uh quick and i typically try to be succinct with what i'm saying and sometimes that has led me into uh, being a little harsh, my wife told me. So, um. You know, you and me both. I was, uh, I was in a job and my boss complained. He was like, why are you so short in your communication? And I was like, because I value your time. Like, I thought I was being respectful and kind to be uh, as efficient as possible. And he said, I could do with a little more chit chat. So, uh, so I feel you. And, and, you know, that's part of it is learning that, that communication style and that rhythm with different people. And, you know, my industry being air conditioning, uh, we're in a really unique time because we have we have five different generations of, of workers in, in our company. We have a company of uh, just a little over 6,000 people. And if you look at the, the uh, demographics of that group, you know, we've got 18-year-olds and we've got 74-year-olds and everything in between and being and, and you know being able to give a message that is heard the same way all the way through the populace of the people 
is difficult. You have yes. to really just think about it before, you know, natural Greg just blurts out something. It's like, <laughs> you know, that worked for like that many people. And then yeah. this many people are going, what's wrong with this idiot? So what if we can uh, just start us off with a little bit about you, you know, educationally, you, you attended some very uh, well-to-do schools that gave you a good, good start. And then you worked for a couple of really cool companies and um, then I'm, I'm intrigued. Uh, I'm going to go back and read your first book, which I haven't read yet. And then um, just kind of give us a little bit. And then, my God, Kosovo, uh, Russia. I mean, all right. So I'm, I'm going to be quiet and let you go for a minute and kind of get us up to speed on Kim Scott. Yeah. So I, uh, as you said, I went to some some universities that gave me a whole series of unfair advantages in the world. Uh but I'm I'm great I'm I'm grateful and simultaneously want to try to change our educational system because it's not working for too many people and it's working too well for a small tiny number of people. So I'll say that about my education. So I studied Russian literature in college. Not exactly sure how I was going to make a living coming out of this very expensive university with a degree in Russian literature. And I wound up moving to Moscow uh, in 1990 uh, and taking a job that earned me $6 a month. So it still wasn't clear how I was going to Big spender. It. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and what I was interested in, in at the time was military conversion, so, sort of swords into plowshares. I was very, uh, I'd studied a lot about arms control and I wound up leading a diamond cutting factory. So how did I get from military to conversion to diamond cutting? Seemed pretty different. And it seemed like a transition from sort of idealism to, uh, to the opposite of idealism. <laughs> and the, the, the way that happened was, was really that the, you know, the Berlin Wall fell and then the Soviet Union collapsed. And in that course of time, I had to figure out new ways of staying in, in Russia. And also, I had this very interesting experience of hiring these Russian diamond cutters. And I thought, you know, I kind of looked my nose down on capitalism. I was like, oh, it's easy. All you do is pay people. And by the time we got finished with a picnic in which I was trying to recruit these guys, I realized that the thing that, and they were all guys, by the way, uh, the thing that I could do that the, that the government could not do for them was to give a damn. That was my, it wasn't just about paying them. It was about a, this human relationship that I was forming. They wanted to know. And given what is happening in, uh, after the invasion, uh, the, you can imagine this, this, I've been thinking a lot about them and this, but what they wanted to know is that they would have a boss who cared enough about them to get them out of Russia if things went sideways there. And, um, and things have certainly gone badly sideways there. Uh, and that is an understatement. Uh, so that was my first experience. And, I, and that was when I realized that management actually is kind of interesting and important. Uh, and then I had a bunch of experiences. I, I went to business school and then I worked at a startup and the, the CEO and founder of the startup was not a bad human being, but a terrible manager, like absolutely atrocious <laughs> And I sort of thought, well, if I were in charge, everything would be great, you know? And then I started, so I started my own company 
And lo and behold, I made a lot of the same mistakes that that other guy had made. <laughs> like there's, it's really hard to be a good manager. And that really got me thinking about, you know, what, what it means to be a great manager and what it means to create the kind of environment in which everyone can do the best work of their lives and also enjoy working together. Maybe even, dare I say, love each other. And, and so it was really the relationship that was at the core that was interesting to me. And not only the relationship between people, but also the ability, like I think for so many people, a great job uh, and work is can help them recover from the trauma, whatever trauma it is that they've experienced in, in, in earlier in their life. And so that was really interesting for me. Like, how could I create that kind of environment? And I, uh, that startup that I, that I talked about failed, but I got a job at Google. One of the nice things about tech is that you seem to only fail up in tech. You don't fall down. Um, so I was lucky enough to get a great job at Google kind of early on. And in some ways, working at Google in those early days felt like a resurrection of my dreams that had sort of died with the company that I had started because they really had done a lot of the work there to create these kind of great working environments. Uh, and, I, and I attribute a lot of that uh, to Shona Brown, who led uh, business operations there. She very consciously created these environments in which managers were stripped of their traditional sources of power and they were forced to build good relationships with their teams because of that. And, uh, and so that was really fun. It was fun for about six years I was there. And then I kind of woke up one morning and realized that the thing that I really cared about was not cost per click. That was my job was to, but, but building a team and a professor of mine from business school had left Harvard to join Apple and Steve Jobs had decided he wanted to throw away all their management training and start from a blank piece of paper. And he said, why don't you come here and help us do that? And so I did that for a couple of years. And that was- That happens to all of us. Don't, yeah. I mean, don't get a big head about that. <laughs> well, it was, yeah, I was very, again, as I said, these so schools, cool. the schools that I went to gave me a huge unfair advantage in the world. Like opportunities kind of just- landed in my lap uh whether look, i deserved even if them or you not didn't do that even if you didn't do it it's a cool story yeah it's a you good know, story like, i love it good <laughs> and for so, you yeah so then i wound up writing writing a book based on sort of what i had what i had learned about management over the course of my career and that was radical candor and uh, I had no idea when I wrote the book that you could charge people to give talks and do workshops. And, and I learned that you could, and that became a small business, Radical Candor. And after I published Radical Candor, sorry, I'm going on for much longer than a minute. No, this, is so, this is so germane to the whole conversation now of how yeah. you got here. Yeah, yeah, how I got here. So after I published Radical Candor, I was doing a workshop at a tech company in San Francisco. And the CEO of that company had been a colleague of mine for the better part of a decade, and she's one of too few black women CEOs in tech. And when I finished giving the presentation, she said to me, she pulled me aside and she said, Kim, I'm excited to roll out Radical Candor. I think it's going to help me build the kind of culture I want. But I got to tell you, it's much harder for me to roll it out than it is for you. And she explained to me that as soon as she would offer anyone, even the most gentle, compassionate criticism, 
she would get slimed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I knew this was true as soon as she said it to me. And I also knew how unfair it was because she's like one of the most kind, even keeled people I've ever met, uh, always laughing. And uh, that really got me to thinking about how I hadn't spent enough time in writing Radical Candor and thinking about the different ways that bias, prejudice, and bullying kind of taint our feedback and, and prevent us from creating these kind of environments that I was trying to create. So that put me down the path of writing my next book, which is called Just Work. Well, I'm excited for that one. Um, just today on the plane, we were talking about feedback and, and how people sometimes are scared to have just, a, we, we had an instance where we were talking about how this could have been, a situation could have been handled differently. Yeah. And it, it went around the whole, I mean, here's the problem. Uh -huh. These folks that were talking about it went all the way around it, but yeah. never talked to the two people that really needed to be asked, yeah. asked what yes. the problem was. Yeah. Because lo and behold, a year into this, in a crisis or a problem, somebody finally said, oh, I, I guess we should talk to those two. And then <laughs> 10 minutes later, they're like, thank God, you know, we got yeah. a solution already. We just needed somebody to ask about it. Yeah. But it goes back to, to your, uh, to your point. And, and you made one other point I want to go back to, but, you know, just having that ability to have that good, clear, open communication feelings aside it's one thing for a 59-year-old white guy. But yeah. for people that aren't 59-year-old and white, uh, it's a different thing, a different way to present yourself. Yeah, you got and, a different set of risks facing you. I mean, I mean we're so I'm, I'm looking at my screen here. We're all three different, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, we, we speak, listen, hear, and understand all differently. And... But it all comes back to that core message of how do I get the point across in the right way without being, you know, too obnoxiously aggressive on the on the uh, actions here. So <laughs> yeah, um, I love it. But you said something a while ago that hit me really hard. You said it can be healing uh, for something that happened previous. Yeah, and you know, I immediately I went to it could have been that morning. And their yeah. work saves yeah. their day yeah. or allows them a safe haven or whatever. Um, even on, a, on, a, on that micro scale, it could be that way. Yeah, it doesn't so. have to be like a childhood trauma. I mean, I have a story about that. I, I have twins. And when they were much younger, I was picking them up at preschool one day. And I, I was going to drive home and I had a meeting. So the timing was a little tight. And the kids got in the car and they started kind of bickering at each other and maybe hitting each other. I don't remember what they, but they were misbehaving. And I said a few times, you know, behave. And finally, I got so angry. I like pulled the car over, pulled into a parking lot. I said, I am so angry. It's dangerous for me to drive this car. And I got out of the car and I walked around the car three times. And then I got back in the car and they were, <laughs> they were a little... You know, their eyes were like saucers. And and I got home and I felt I thought, oh, I wish I didn't have this call. I wish I didn't have work. I need to reassure them that everything's OK. But I had to get on the call. So I got on the call and I was talking to this person. And all of a sudden I realized both kids had come and they were sitting on either side of me on the couch, just like 
with their bodies relaxed. They're like, oh, thank goodness. Like the, the reasonable mother has returned and the crazy lady yeah. has left. And, Mommy's and back. I, yeah, yeah. And I realized that the work, like it was not a huge deal, but to work was really helpful for me in that moment as a parent. Like, and that's, I think, how that like work-life integration works in that way. So that's like a small example of what you're talking about. And maybe, you know, you had a fight with your spouse in the morning or you, had a terrible experience with the police driving to work and you go into work and like you're all of a sudden you're in this realm where, where you have a skill and your skill earns you money. And that is really great. <laughs> That's a great thing. Yeah. It, it's um, yeah. I'm not very good at compartmentalizing my life to be no, quite honest. Neither am I. And, and nor do I want to be, I yeah. like my integrated lifestyle because I yeah. can, I can play, work, be family all at the same time. I just have to manage my calendar properly. And I, yeah. I really try to do husband hat or whatever. I'm just, yeah. I'm just me, you know? Um, yeah. So I love that. But if, why don't you, if you don't mind, just walk us through uh, the axis of radical candor because a lot of people probably haven't read it yet um, yeah. that are on this call. Uh, we're, you know, um, always learning. So I would love to, to hear it from you of how you kind of uh, built the quadrants and, and how those things came to you. Sure. So all radical candor is, is caring personally and challenging directly at the same time. And that really doesn't sound so radical, caring and challenging. And yet, as you said, almost everyone at work and in every part of their life feels like feedback is an ex is a is a existential dread none of us want to receive it really and none of, none of us want to give it and so one of the things that i learned in the course of uh, my two years at business school is that all of life's hardest problems can be boiled down to a good two by two framework so that's what i did for radical candor so if you think about a vertical line and you label that caring personally, and then put a horizontal line and label that challenging directly in the upper right hand box. That is what that is what radical candor is when you're caring and challenging at the same time. Or you can think about it as compassionate candor, if you prefer. Now, what happens when did you have something to say, Greg? Look, like I, you I, got a thought. I've got so much I want to say. I'm working not to say anything. So okay. Please keep I'm going. I'm going to walk through all the quadrants. So sometimes, sometimes you challenge directly. All of us do this. Sometimes we challenge directly, but we forget to show that we care personally. And that I call obnoxious aggression. Now, in the first draft of the book, am I allowed to curse on your podcast? Okay. In the first draft of the book, I call that the asshole box because it felt more, you know, radically candid. But I changed the words to obnoxious aggression for a really important reason. I found that when I called it the asshole box, people would use this, these four boxes to start writing names in boxes. And I beg of you all listening, please don't use this framework that way. These are not labels for people. This is not another Myers-Briggs personality test. These are mistakes that each and every one of us make multiple times a day. 
Now, obnoxious aggression is a big problem. It's a problem because it hurts other people. It's also a problem because it's inefficient. Because if you act like a jerk to someone else, they're likely to go into fight or flight mode in their brains. And then they literally can't hear what you're saying. So you're wasting your breath. But it's also a problem for a third, more subtle reason, which is, I don't know about you, but for me, when I realize I've acted like a jerk, it's not actually my instinct to go the right way on the care personally dimension. Instead, it's my instinct to go the wrong way on challenge directly. And then I wind up in the very worst place of all, manipulative insincerity. And that's where passive aggressive behavior, political behavior, all of the things that make a workplace feel most gross creep in. So like if obnoxious aggression is front stabbing, manipulative insincerity is backstabbing. And when we tell stories about things going wrong at work or frankly in any other relationship, we often are telling stories about obnoxious aggression and manipulative insincerity because that's where the drama is. So if you watch The Office, you're going to see a lot of episodes about those two behaviors. But in my experience, the vast majority of us make the vast majority of our, of our mistakes in this last box, where we do remember to show that we're caring personally, but we're so worried about not hurting someone's feelings or not offending them that we don't tell them something they'd be better off knowing in the long run. And that's what I call ruinous empathy. Not that empathy is always bad, but it can, it can paralyze us. It can prevent us from doing the right thing doing the right thing, from challenging people when they need to be challenged, from saying the thing that really needs to be said. So that's that's the idea in a, in a nutshell. Well, it, it sparked so many thoughts for me. And, you know, I, I know that all of us are all of this on any given day in, yeah. in very, <laughs> various degrees, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of like you brought up the Myers-Briggs thing, but uh, on the DISC personality profile, D-I-S-C, yeah. you know, I find myself, if I took that thing four times a day, I would be four different things. Yeah, yeah me too. Until, you know, you can you can take a breath and kind of get recentered, like getting out of the car and walking around three times. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you kind of get your get your wits about you or whatever you like to say that it, that is. And then you can say, okay, reset and then take off again. Um, I, I think that I'll, I'll just speak for me. Sometimes it's hard to hit reset because you're so darn passionate about yeah. what, what Greg is trying to get done. Yeah. Never mind the 99 gabillion other people that need to get trying to help done. you get it done. Yeah. And and it just, you know, it's so it's so rewarding to be able to look at material and, and you know, I'm a hard book person. I don't I don't like Kindle because I like a book. I like to be yeah. able to Underline pick it up, it. read it. Yeah. Refer, yeah. And but having something like that to kind of bring you back to center, um such a great gift. And you know, the the words I wrote down earlier were, you know, you, you have broken this down into like normal human terms that we all yeah. can understand. <laughs> um, and, you know, the a-hole box is, is yeah. uh, that's a pretty good name for it. Uh, <laughs> for it sure. is, except, except that you don't want to, you know, uh, we, we are, well, look, we're all a-holes sometimes, but it's easier to say we're all obnoxiously aggressive some of the time. There you go. That's, and and you had to change that partly, if I recall, reading because of somebody didn't want to print that in England. Is that right? 
Oh, no. You know what? So the subtitle of the book in the U.S. is Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. But in in the in the UK, they they changed the subtitle sort of over my objections to uh, uh, get what you want by saying what you mean. And to me, that sounds a mean a little bit (laughs) and also a little manipulative. Uh, so I don't love the UK. I'll be radically candid here. I don't love the UK subtitle. Um, I, I like the US one much better. But it, it was funny that the editor in the UK said, well, you know, we can't use the word kick ass here. Um, and we don't think about humanity at work. And I'm like, but that's the whole point of the book. Yeah, <laughs> was, read the book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um we have a, a friend up in Canada that has a nonprofit called Kick-Ass Careers. So yeah, I, I, I love appreciate that. And we, <laughs> being in the air conditioning industry, this is a little bit of a, a, a sidebar, but there is a fan. They make these big fans like you see in airports, these uh-huh. humongous ceiling fans, and they're called Big-Ass Fans. <laughs> that's the name and their, that their logo. Is, that's what I need in my house. Their logo is a donkey. Their logo is a donkey. I love it. <laughs> So. <laughs> that may be what All I right. need in my house. I have an A-frame, and like the heat just kind of gets captured in here. So I need a big, need, I need a big ass, big ass fan. Heat down the A-frame. It, what's that? Sorry, I lost you for a second. No, my my internet kind of went squirrely. So you need a fan, a big fan that runs yeah. backwards, so yeah. you push that hot air down the A-frame. Yeah, that yeah, help. yeah, exactly. So there's your air conditioning 101. There it is. Thank you. So um, we, you know, as, as I said, we like I'm just using my company as an example, but our industry, my industry is chock full of the same five generations of people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it is. And, and Gabby is our token young person. I use her a lot for. <laughs> for bouncing ideas off of because, you know, she's in her early twenties and it's a great reset for me to think about how would Gabby think about this and what does this mean? Because when she hears this a lot of time, uh, I can only think God knows what Gabby must be thinking, but then I, and then I ask her and, and either, you know, I verify it or not, but having the ability to, to communicate, uh, in, in in any form is tough, but being yeah. able, but being able to deliver radical candor across that many demographic pools of people, yeah, uh, it yeah. makes it makes me really think. Like, okay, do I do I have to alter my delivery? Um, do I alter my words? What do I do when I'm delivering radical candor? Uh, to an uh, 18-year-old who just started on a plumbing job last week versus today we were talking to a gentleman. He's got a guy that works with his company. The guy's been there for 46 years. Yeah. You know, those are two different conversations. Yeah. But but if you need something done or you're trying to set precedence or trying to help the culture, whatever you're trying to do, how do you deliver that? And I spend a lot of time lately thinking about that um, while I've got all these inputs like your book coming at me thinking, okay, make sure you're communicating with the, with the filter. And yeah. I just, I find it fascinating. 
Yeah, no, it is fascinating. And I think the something you said, you've said this now a couple of times, and I want to just call it out because it's the most important thing you can do. You said in, in the situation you were describing, you said finally someone had to go ask them what was going on, not tell them what was wrong, but ask them what was going on. And you said you asked Gabby what she thinks about, and that's, so I think there's kind of an order of operations to radical candor, and it always starts with soliciting feedback. No matter who you're talking to and no matter what your role is, what your sort of power position in the company is, because you want to make sure that you understand where the other person is coming from. And radical candor gets measured not at the speaker's mouth, but at the listener's ear. And that's the first and most important, I think, lesson in, in radical candor. And I think when you are communicating across generations, I think it's important to like really, I mean, it's when you're communicating to anyone, this is important, but it's especially important when you're communicating to a broad set of people. You want to be aware of stripping sort of uh, jargon out of your speech <laughs> because, and, and you also want to be careful, I think, about, and this is true across generations, but it's also just true in general if you're speaking to a, a, a big group of people. You want to be careful about metaphors because we use metaphors in ways that are really upsetting to people and, and, and in ways we don't mean to. So for example, when I was writing Just Work, I hired someone uh, to be my bias buster, to like go through and read and tell me how, how the words I was choosing would land for different groups of people. Given the nature of that book, that felt especially important, but I think it's important no matter what kind of communication you're doing. And my, my bias buster identified seven words that I said that I used that I shouldn't. And, and a lot of them were sloppy metaphors. So one example was I would say see when I meant understand. Uh, and, uh, and, and my immediate instinct when I saw that, when I, I just did it, see, I still haven't fixed the problem when, when she told me that was, oh my gosh, no word in the English language is safe anymore. You know, I think, and I think as, as part of the older generation, it's easy to have that, uh, that instinct because things that we said as a matter of course that nobody questioned when we were kids are now totally not okay to say anymore. And, and, uh, and that can, and like changing those patterns of speech is really hard. And, and even when we are trying to do it, we often fail as I just did. So that's one thing to think about is like really sort of understand how, how your metaphors are landing for people. Uh, another example is I was uh, recording a podcast recently, maybe I was doing a talk and somebody gave me feedback. I had used the metaphor, something had metastasized. And he said, my, my wife just got diagnosed with cancer that has metastasized. And that hit me like a gut punch. And I will not make that mistake again. Uh, and so I think we, you, I think it's a good idea. Just, I mean, words matter and choosing your words carefully when you're speaking to a big group of people is important because again, your language, your communication skills get measured, not at your mouth, not at your intentions, but at how someone else interprets what you're saying. That, that, that's so true, Kim. And I remember for years, I, I have said 
words are like bullets. Once yeah. they're shot out of the gun, you yeah. don't pull it, you don't get them back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know? But I, you're, you're so right. You know, like using words like metastasized, um, I could see where that would, if you're, if you're a little bit raw from a family drama or, or yeah. something happening, it, it just feels weird to hear, you know? Yeah. It um, feels bad. But that, that's, that's a learning moment, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's really yeah. makes me think, God, what have I said today? <laughs> yeah. Look, I just did it. The other, I mean, another, <laughs> another one of those words that I used as a child all the time and growing up all the time that is not, that I know better than using, but I still do sometimes is lame. Oh, that's lame. I would say. And what I meant is, you know, that's not cool. It's not, you know, there's no reason to use that word. And <laughs> And I really thought this was one of the things I knew and didn't do anymore. And I did it twice, recording a podcast just the other day. And someone wrote it, wrote in and, and pointed it out. And we took it out. And I really appreciate when people are willing to not say, oh, you're a horrible person, for, but, you know, you may not be aware. Or you may be aware, but you may have slipped up. And I think we really have to be kind of polite and persistent with each other when we're, when we're talking about the, that kind of thing. Well, you know, I I I, I kind of use the same thought process. If, if you have a bad experience in a restaurant, yeah. If you if you really was, then they don't know how to improve it. Yeah. If you just say, yeah, the fish was fine, when really it tasted like you know, three days old, watered down rubber. <laughs> they don't know. And if they if they truly care, then it, it matters to them. Yeah. Um, now I, I don't know whether it care they care or not, but my duty is to and my wife and I have this all the time, uh, this conversation. If you don't know, you can't go to work on it. And yeah, you know, I think that that's so true. We've been married for thirty seven years, and you know, I've screwed up every day for thirty seven years in some variety. <laughs> But I'm I'm willing to work on my my husbandry because yeah. I, I know you know I, sometimes I've gotten out of the car and walked around it three times to yeah. get my thoughts you know back <laughs> on track. But it, you have to be willing to go to work on it. And, and yeah, and, and to your you said it a while ago. You got to be willing to fail and recognize, you know, okay, I screwed this up. I'm going to start over. But we're all humans, and we're going to do that, and it's okay. Yeah. You know? It's yeah. just a matter of getting back up on the horse and, and adjusting the saddle and taking off again. Yeah. I have one other thought about managing an intergenerational workforce. Cause, and I've thought about this a lot because uh, I, when I first started working at Google, I guess I was 40, roughly well, 40. And, and people were people who were working for me were right out of college. And I realized that it is the job of the younger generation to challenge the older generation, to give them, <laughs> give them feedback. Like that's how we move forward as, as humanity is, is younger people come in and they see something, they see things differently and that's what helps us improve things. And I think forever, the older generation has not always appreciated this feedback <laughs> I'm the younger generation. And I think it feels new to every 
you know, first of all, it feels new to realize you're in the older generation. And second of all, it feels new that you're getting all this feedback. Like you think you had this lifetime of experiences and you figured it all out. And now all of a sudden, someone who has less experience than you is telling you, actually, you're doing it wrong. And that's hard. Uh, but it is, that's what moves us forward. And I think kind of coming into those, those conversations with that mindset can be really helpful. And that, that's a great point. And, you know, being open to, I think there's a mindset you have to have. If you, you know, I, I'm a Kaizen practitioner. Yes. I got a tattoo. <laughs> I want, my, my goal is to get better. You know, yeah. I'm not, I'm not content with, with Crumpton yesterday. I've got yeah. to do better. And, and that's just how I'm built, but I have to be willing to to ask and, and to learn. And I do every day, you know, I, I know I screw up. People tell me I screw up a lot. Um, and, <laughs> Cause you're and open okay to them. They're, they're, you're open to them telling you like, and you, I'm, you not reward that on my, I'm not sitting there on my thumb, you know, waiting on life to go by not yeah. screwing up. I'd rather, yeah. I'd rather screw up and be doing some fun stuff, but yeah. 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 Um, I, I did want to comment on the t-shirt. Uh, on your website uh-huh. that okay. says, if you can say it to your dog, it's not feedback. I just thought that <laughs> the, that was, a, it's so true. You know, Yeah. we don't get better with, with these, these softball boys and girls kind of, yeah. I mean, everybody likes to feel good. Yeah. You, you want to say good job on this and be specific with your, with your praise, but, you know, just having that open, honest, clear communication is, is so important. And when you don't or when I don't do that, I feel like crap afterwards because yeah. I know I know in my heart I hem hauled around the situation and I didn't handle it well. And then you got to redo the damn thing. It's yeah. not like yeah. I, I could have just done it right to start with. Now I got to go back and say, look, what I really meant was. Yeah. And that's and like it's twice as hard. Exactly. It really is. All right, Gabby, um, being that you're sitting there smiling, what, how is this, how does this resonate for you um, on the radical candor? You hear, we hear a lot in the public about how you have to soft pedal young people and you're not tough and all that stuff. I don't believe that myself. I think it's just different words we have to use. But how does this sound to you? How are you hearing this? Yeah, I mean, I think, for for me, as far as like soft pedaling and things like that go, um, for me personally, I have always enjoyed feedback from other people just because I, and maybe this is the way my mom raised me, I don't know, but I have always like, I don't get my feelings hurt very easily. And I am I'm the kind of person who likes to do things the correct way. I'm a little bit of a perfectionist. And so I'm like, if you can tell me how to do it right <laughs> so that I don't do it wrong, that's great for, that's great for both of us. Um, and well, so I think I that speaks to the efficiency that Kim brought up earlier. You're, you're able to move down the path without having to double back. You know, it's just like you're just clicking it, clicking along. Exactly. But I also, in that same sense, I can say, like Kim was saying earlier, there are definitely times where I've had different reactions to criticisms 
or feedbacks that were given to me um, because of the way that they were delivered. So I definitely, and that was something that like, in my brain, I ended up having to like correct where I was like, you know what, like, it doesn't matter the way they said it. The point is like, they have the experience. So just like, listen to what they're saying. Um, but that can be really hard because at that same time, um, there have been times in, you know, past jobs that I had, even in college where, um, a manager says something to me and they're not exactly nice about it, or, you know, they act a little condescending about it as if it's like, oh, you should have known that kind of thing. And that is like, that takes away of level a level of respect that I had for them because they're kind of talking down to me as opposed to having that like helpful mindset. But I'm also like, you don't need to fluff it. Like if I'm doing something wrong, tell me what I'm doing wrong and give me like actual advice. But at the same time, be, you know, polite about it. Like you don't have to be condescending with me. You don't have to be like patronizing or anything like that. But at the same time, like be clear because there have also been times where I've gotten feedback and I leave the feedback situation and I'm like, what did they even tell me? Like, what am I supposed to take from, from this conversation? And it's like in the moment, I'm like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I can do that. And then I leave and I'm like, what am I doing? I don't even, I don't even know what was said to me because it was so like over fluffed in the sense of like to not hurt my feelings in a way that I leave and there's no clear direction behind, you know, the mistake that was made or the path moving forward. And so I definitely, I see like where that is coming from, where you're coming from on that, Kim, because that's definitely been, I mean, I'm only 23, but in the few job positions that I've had, I've definitely experienced all varieties of that type of like feedback where it comes at you and you're like, wait, hold on. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So what's worse? Like you're describing kind of what I, in radical candor terms, obnoxious aggression and ruinous empathy. What's worse from your perspective? Um, I think for me, the obnoxious aggression is definitely worse solely because when that, when I kind of get that obnoxious aggression, I'm less willing to go back and ask a question Whereas at least when I get, when I get that kind of that empathy and I leave the situation, I'm like, wait, what was even just said to me? I can at least, I'm at least comfortable enough because they were like kind enough or soft enough about it that like, I'm like, okay, you know what? Let me just go back to them and ask for a level of clarification so that I, I can understand better what they were saying initially. And then it kind of gives them the opportunity to be a little more, a little bit more specific in whatever their explanation was or anything like that. Whereas with that obnoxious aggression, that kind of not only like dampens my respect for someone in that moment, but also makes it really hard for me to want to go back and say like, Hey, by the way, like I'm still a little bit confused on this or, you know, so Kim, is that what what Gabby replied? Is that normal? What what do you see in those situations? How how do what do, what do people think's worse typically? Is it 
Uh, I think that uh, I, I think it's different people have different responses and it's all normal. I mean, it's not there's but but I think for a lot of people feel exactly the way that Gabby did that it's so painful that obnoxious aggression is so painful that it's kind of hard to recover from and it does more damage to the relationship over the long run. Uh, and they would prefer, especially people who are like Gabby, who are not afraid to go back in and ask for clarification, who are wide open to feedback. There are other people who feel like the ruinous empathy leaves them feeling, uh, I describe it like a dead man walking. Hard to, since I'm a woman, that's especially a hard way to feel. <laughs> but, uh, but, and so they almost prefer the obnoxious aggression because then at least they know where they stand. Uh, so I think different people have different, I, I think I, uh, my dad was a litigator and, um, was, um, so he, you know, he was kind of, he could be kind of harsh verbally. And so I got used to it. It didn't, it doesn't really bother me. So I probably prefer obnoxious aggression if I have to choose to ruin a sympathy, because also I'm not always as good as Gabby is at picking up on the signals. Like if somebody says they think something's great, even though that's not what they're thinking, I'm apt to think, oh, they think it's great, you know? And, and so I'm, I'm more confused by the ruinous empathy than by the obnoxious aggression. So Tim, I'm curious, is your, uh, th this is how you strike me having spent um, what 47 minutes together. If somebody comes at you, with obnoxious aggression, I see you getting up on your tiptoes and giving it right back. Is that right or wrong? Uh, that, that is my instinct, is to be obnoxiously <laughs> aggressive back. Uh, sometimes, if I'm batting above average, I'll, I'll get curious, not furious, and I'll be able to give radical candor back. But like my, it's my instinct, uh, it's my instinct to, to get down there in the obnoxious aggression uh, box with them. And that's like, it's, that's usually not the most productive response. It's never the best route, is yeah. it? But we still do it. Yeah, I no. Know. And, and, and sometimes it can feel kind of satisfying, but, uh, but, yeah, but, it, like, but what, it, 10 minutes. Yeah, exactly. I, I had a mentor who said to me, if it feels too good to hit send on that email, don't send it. Don't send it. <laughs> so I, I can't remember if I read this from you or from someone else, but it said, if, if you feel like something needs to be said, ask three questions. Does it need to be said at all? Yeah. Does it need to be said now? And does yeah. it need to be said by me? Yes. And I don't remember where I learned those three questions. Those are but great questions. They're not mine, has, but they are great questions. That Those three things in the last year or so have saved my bacon. And yeah. maybe I'm just getting old enough to listen <laughs> to myself a little bit. But I'm like, you know what? No, I don't yeah. have to say anything. And yeah. uh, that, that's been that's been a, a blessing uh, privately, you know, yeah. not to have to yeah. unwind the, the mess that that, you know, it's like a red screen of, of I can't see anymore comes down and you get all yeah. mad. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I, much easier. what I did say in Radical Canter, a friend of mine um, ha had uh, had a wedding on a little island that had a very fragile septic system. And over all the toilets was a sign that said, if it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. And her godfather... 
got up at the rehearsal dinner and said, these are words to stay married by. <laughs> you know, you don't, you know, leave three unimportant things unsaid every day. Uh, so I think those are great. And, and also the, the question that you asked, does it need to be said by me? This is something my husband often reminds me. He said, he says to me, Kim, there are bullet makers and bullet shooters. And sometimes people are setting you up to be the bullet shooter. Don't shoot, let them shoot their own bullets. Don't pull the trigger. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's really true. Well, I, I mean, I think we could talk for three hours. I love the insight you're bringing to us. I know we can't, unfortunately. Um, I am curious as we as we start to kind of wind the thing down a bit. What what's next for you? What's on the horizon? You know, you've got these two books out there, and um, what what are you working on? I am working on a novel. So my kids are now fourteen, and they kind of have a pessimistic view of the future. And when I was growing up in the seventies, like we thought we were going to solve all the world's problems. It was kind of like an optimistic decade. And, you know, maybe some of that optimism was misplaced, but I think mostly that optimism was really, really helpful. So I'm going to write this novel. It's about the high school class of 2020, and it's going to start in 2020 when things are looking pretty bleak. And then it's going to fast forward to 2070, and they will have fixed, you know, they will have addressed climate change. Maybe it won't be totally fixed, but they will, they will, have, a, they will have created a more fair and reasonable world. Um, and so I'm going to try to paint an optimistic vision of the future, which I think is kind of missing right now. It's, it's totally agree. I, I really do. I, I spend a lot of time trying to listen to people and to listen, not only what they say, but what they type and what they, what they express. And yeah, there, there was a great book that I read last year called the gap in the game. And, you know, it, it talks about looking at from where you start and appreciating to where you are, not from where you're starting to where you ultimately like to end up. And sometimes I think we really we miss the gap, the, the gain that we've made, you know, from a humanity standpoint, technology, whatever. We don't appreciate that. We get bogged down in there's a bunch of hillbillies we've got in Washington, D.C. that are trying to do whatever they're trying to do with our tax dollars. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense for anybody. I don't care what color jersey you wear. Um, so I think we get bogged down in that crap, but there's so much good. You know, people, they're always talking about, well, we can't find good kids. Well, look at this kid right here on the screen with us. We got a, I think this generation is a great, great, I great. Do, I do too. Yeah. I do too. And and I'm I'm anxious to watch them mature. And you know, there there's so much wisdom that the baby boomers have that we're not extracting very well, and they're going home with it. Where we could impart a whole lot of good stuff on Gabby, where she doesn't make the same mistakes we make. Yeah. And instead of spending time making mistakes, apply that time to doing more good. And yeah. but we're not doing that. We're we're letting people retire at a record pace due to the baby boomer population, and they're going home with all the knowledge. And yeah, and we I'm need like that. We the need flag. The, yeah, like, we need that knowledge. I gotta have it. So we gotta figure that out too. But I'm I'm so glad that you're doing that for uh, everybody, but especially the younger generation to read. Um, I look forward to that. That'll be a good one. 
Well, um, I look, I look for it's going to probably be another four years. I don't write fast, but I'll get it written. Uh, and are your twins, uh, are they boy, girl? How are they? One of each. One of each. Okay, cool. Yeah. My sister has twin girls, so I'm, I'm a little oh, bit that's great. Yeah, yeah. I love I love having the twins. It's, it's tons of fun. I heard somebody ask uh, somebody one time, they said they had twins, a boy and a girl, and they said, are they identical? And I thought that was a weird question. You know what? They can be, as it turns out. It depends on when the thing divides. And if, really? and, and, and if it divides before gender has been assigned, they can be identical boy-girl twins. One, one of the things I learned, uh, but mine are not identical. <laughs> yeah, why do you look like you're total shocked on your face when she was explaining that? <laughs> That's that's just crazy. I have twin sisters, and that is just crazy to me. I mean, they're fraternal too, and they're the same gender. So I couldn't imagine, I couldn't imagine them being identical, let alone being a boy and a girl and being identical. <laughs> my, my sisters' girls don't even look like they're related. They're so fraternal. Wow! Like wow! They look like they're just two people walking down the street together. Yeah. <laughs> well, Kim. Um, we're coming up on our time. I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, you still got three hour jump on us. So you got a lot left to do today. Yeah, so maybe I got, you're to start writing. I don't my, know. My daughter and I, we got some shopping to do. Oh, well, there, we certainly don't want to get in the yeah, way of that. Yeah, don't get in the way of that. But um, really do appreciate you you joining us. I hope that uh, we, we've inspired some folks to go out and buy the book and spend some time with it. Um, I look forward to uh, getting the second book, and I had my order uh, messed up earlier, but I'm going to order that today and um, get cracking on that one and see if, if I can, can guide Gabby into being, you know, more inclusive in her circle. <laughs> <laughs> but I uh, really do. No, no kidding. Uh, uh, thank you for taking time with us. It's been a blast. And as I said, to get the, to talk to somebody who I appreciate their writing in, in real time and in real person is very special. So thank you for that. Well, thank you so much. I loved our conversation and uh, maybe we'll do another one on just work after you read it. Let me know what you think. I will. I promise you, I will bug Erin until she gives in. So All thank right. You. All right. Thank you so right, well, much. Gabby, you want to head us, head us towards the house? Yep, absolutely. Well, Kim, thank you again for joining us. It has been really great hearing about Radical Candor. And I feel like I've learned so much that for me as a young professional, I am going to take with me and I'm definitely going to read your book now. I feel like I heard you when you were on Adam Morrissey's podcast. So hearing you again, I'm like, okay, well, I have to read it now. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's been really great getting to hear all of your feedback and about your writing process and where where you started to where you are now. Um, so thank you again for joining us. And then for all of our listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of Straight Outta Crumpton. For more episodes like this, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify podcasts. And for more Greg Crumpton content, don't forget to check out gregcrumpton.com.